This is the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. In this episode, we're looking at the state of literary London during the Second World War with writer Will Loxley. Will's book, Writing in the Dark, Bloomsbury, The Blitz and Horizon magazine, brings to life the cultural and intellectual environment that influenced some of Anthony Burgess's most defining thoughts about writing and literature. Many of the writers that feature in this story such as Stephen Spender, George Orwell, Dylan Thomas and Evelyn Waugh, had the development of their creative lives arrested by the war. This was the same fate as Burgess, who felt he had been exiled to a military post in Gibraltar. But all of these writers tried to make sense of the war through literature, and what they produced remains some of the most important work of the 20th century. Will Loxley is a writer based in Sheffield, Writing in the Dark is his first book and was called Energetic and Infused by the Times. He is currently working on his second book, A Novel Idea, The Race to Master the English Novel from Daniel Defoe to Jane Austen. Will can be found on Twitter at Will Loxley. Writing in the Dark is published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson and is now available in paperback from your favourite place to buy books. Here's Andrew Biswell of the Burgess Foundation, who spoke to Will Loxley in July 2022. It's a great pleasure to welcome Will Loxley to the Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. Uh, Will's the author of Writing in the Dark, a literary history of the Second World War. Now, Will, Writing in the Dark tells the story of how writers and editors managed to keep literature going during those dark days of the Second World War. Can you tell us what's important about this period in literary history and indeed why you wanted to write a new version of that story? Yeah, so I started writing the book during my um, master's degree. And um, I think at that time I wanted a a view of literature, at least in my own head, that was um, very comprehensive and I could see a clear clear timeline of of major events being responded to in writing or, or just a clear causality. You know, phrases like um, Willa Cather's The World Broke in Two in 1922. That's a very uh, nice, uh, succinct uh, point to, to, to know. Um, and I, I, I knew about the um, poetry of the First World War, as um, I think everyone in this country does. Um, you certainly know it. Um, from high school education and perhaps even further back, but poems like um, Rupert Brooks' um, The Soldier and um, Lawrence Binion's For the Fallen, these are sort of ubiquitous at certain times of the year and certain uh, major events in um, Britain. And then after that, there was there's, of course, this um, interwar period, which gets a lot of coverage, um, I was sort of troubled by um, the kind of black hole or, or, or blind spot around the um, the Second World War. The, the feeling that I knew war poetry was was this discipline that the country had a proud tradition of, but it hadn't seemed, at least in my mind, to extend to the 1940s. As of a few years ago, when I started thinking about this book, I couldn't name a single um, poem that was specifically about fighting in the in the Second World War. And uh, there was a lot else that I didn't know. For instance, a big one is, why didn't I know that 
um, T.S. Eliot had published his uh, four quartets throughout the Second World War. And why didn't I know that Finnegan's Wake was published in, in, in 1939? So, so that was a big question for me. And the question I was asking from early on, which, which turned out to be a question that, that was being asked from 1939, was really, where are the war poets? At some point in that year, I, there's, a, there's a bookshop on um, Wellington Street in Oxford, I think it's still there, called The Last Bookshop. And I was walking downstairs on some rickety old Georgian stairs um, to the basement where they have novels. And um, on a kind of windowsill, they had a big stack of sun-spoiled horizon magazines. And, and amazingly, they, they, the, the copies they had there covered a, a good... Um, portion of the the first few years of the war with some kind of added in from um, 49 and 50. I had the final issue and the penultimate issue, which turned out to be really useful in, in writing the book. And um, it was clear, you know, you don't have to, to, to go too deeply into an issue of Horizon to, 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 to know that the, these magazines were produced during wartime and for soldiers as as well as others there are copies on the back that um promote a uh, a, a a campaign where where you know you can buy it buy an issue and, and 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 another issue can be sent to someone in the forces that you add their regiment or, or whatever it is tell us about horizon magazine which is so central to your story i mean what was it and who was behind it and what kind of work did they publish okay so horizon is um it's a short kind of, it was a literary monthly quite short and 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 accessible but the idea for it come from a from a man called cyril connolly who was known around literary london at that time for his um for his part memoir part critical manifesto enemies of promise which was published in 1938 which it's a strange book and it and it, it begins i think almost exactly the, the 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 first half is is dedicated to his um, thoughts on what he sees as the two distinct groups or types of 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 writers um the first group he calls the mandarins and in connolly's eyes certain names off the top of my head names like uh, virginia wolf uh, henry james uh, ronald furbank and others to connolly these writers were motivated by writing as a virtuosic exercise and less concerned with content they were writing for writing's sake then there was, there was the younger group the younger group Connolly saw as um the vernacular authors who were were far more concerned with the content of their books and and would typically use a a, a stripped back style Connolly loved George Orwell's writing and 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 would throughout his life and Orwell's a fine example of of someone who who is angled less towards style but has a fantastic way of utilizing it to uh, support his content so Connolly had written this book and I think I think and I imagine as as 
any young reader who picked it up, it was a very um, appealing manifesto in that it suggested that for quite a long time, a certain group of writers had been dominating the uh, the mainstream and, and something new was ready to appear. So Connolly makes his name and he had worked previously in as as a books reviewer for um, various magazines and newspapers but he introduced himself on a on a on a larger stage as someone with strong opinions about where literature should be and uh, he's he's making enemies <laughs> almost immediately and people like Virginia Woolf for the rest of her life would she didn't like him at all there's there are there are moments in her her diaries and she describes meeting um, Connolly at Elizabeth Bowen's house in Ireland and um, she says that he um, brought with him the uh, the reek of the Chelsea omnibus, meaning um, you know the, these were upstarts from a, from from the kind of uh, rougher, fashionable Chelsea, where where people were sharing houses for lower rents. It was a very different backdrop to to Virginia's own life in Kensington and Bloomsbury. So. Horizon begins at, at the uh, strangest time. It's just after Christmas, 1939. And um, when everyone else is worried about paper shortages and how the, the, the war will make these kinds of productions impossible, Connolly's sort of, in his, uh, in his own fantasy world, believes this is the perfect time to um, fulfil a, a lifelong dream of editing a magazine. Um, so the first issue is he... He, he he struggles to find a balance of contributors because he wants new writers. He wants to announce himself with a new a new cohort or or, or the sense of a new movement. But he's 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 turned down by uh, Virginia Woolf. Manages to get some some bits of um, other more established names like uh, Herbert Reed and um, Hugh Walpole. Most importantly to me, this, a lot of my research was was based on reading through all of these. He um, includes a kind of editor's note or forward, which he calls his comment at the beginning of every issue. And these are increasingly based on his unique views of the war. He sort of sees it as a threat to culture and he becomes a kind of flag waver or torch holder for this, this idea of culture and he he fears that uh, uh, the war will kind of destroy a lot of what he calls bourgeois liberal society and mm. and and the freedom the freedom to to think and read and 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 take time writing poetry and things like that so he he, he becomes an important voice and um you know i think anyone who who was who was writing at that time wanted to be in horizon and wanted to know connolly connolly's a fascinating figure as you say though i mean not as canonical as people like uh, Wolf and Evelyn Waugh, clearly very influential in his day. I wonder, what do you think was the importance of Cyril Connolly and of Horizon to the people who were reading it, the soldiers and so forth, in the 1940s? I think it was the, the feeling of... Connolly had this this term he used of sort of freezing the calendar on, on 1939. It was a way to... to um, mentally live not outside the war but because that was impossible but to live as you had lived before the war at least in your 
imaginary life. I imagine for for young men and women who were who were stationed in various places, and and I think I think Anthony Burgess is a great example in that he he tells of these various horrible spots with ter- with a complete lack of uh, facilities and warmth and food, where he was forced to uh, spend most of his time during the war, and and you can imagine how much a magazine and it's and it's and it's it's digestible there are great stories and there and there's great poetry and Connolly's Connolly's own voice in these comments is 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 wonderful he writes with such humor and flair and color and I, I yeah I like to think of it as um Anthony Pohl the, the author Anthony Pohl said it it became a kind of beacon during the the second world war and that certainly helped me to understand its position but i i also like to think of it as giving color to uh, the lives of people who are really missing what they had before if you were 18 years old and coming out of school and you were looking forward to university and 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 having debates and and writing poetry and um tackling questions that you that fascinated you and that had been taken away from you i i think i think horizon would have you know at least for the hour or so you're reading it allow you to kind of piece that back together i'm sure you're right it was a remarkable bringing together of uh, poetry and fiction and commentary and criticism and a lot of writing about art and contributions from people like henry moore it must have been as you say very exciting to have uh, you know that remarkable combination of talents in your hands um uh, you know from time to time as each issue was published now each of the chapters in your book deals with a specific writer or a group of writers and i wonder how did you decide what your points of focus were going to be how did you go about researching each of those um characters or groups i initially tried out a few different combinations of characters based on my preconceptions of who the main players were. There was an early attempt, which seems strange now, to incorporate the uh, composer um, Constance Lambert because I had read in his um, biography that he was still trying to tour with his, I think it was the Sadler's Wells Company at at the time of the outbreak of war. Um, So I was was very much um, being pulled towards these colourful episodes which I thought would be uh, fantastic in in a book like this and so I was going through this process of trial and error and eventually had to concede that really the story is the story and uh, and and whatever you know interpretations um, people at the at the time had of the events there is a there, there there was a core truth to what happened and certain people were were remembered simply because their influence was enormous. Um, I'd wanted to steer clear initially of people like Virginia Woolf because there was, you know, there are people whose lives are are dedicated to, uh, you know, studying her work and her her life. So that frightened me too much. A big name like um, Virginia Woolf at that point I wasn't ready to um, put myself forward 
um, on her behalf. And after a while, I thought, hang on, I, I won't be writing about Virginia Woolf. I'm not writing a biography of Virginia Woolf. I'm writing about Virginia Woolf and Stephen Spender or Virginia Woolf and John Lehman. And, and seeing her, not necessarily through the eyes of these, these people, but seeing her in the same frame as as them and 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 what would that bring out which which, which was new um when i thought about wolf for a while i thought you know really she works well as she's a fantastic kind of glue holding a lot of these characters together because of course through through wolf you get you get ts Eliot, you get you get forster and then hang on also she's she's friends with young Stephen Spender and and Wolf and Leonard are, are, are currently employing John Lehman who's 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 managing the, the Hogarth Press and everyone's in this square Mecklenburg Square in Bloomsbury um so so with Virginia Woolf I started with you know, the only place to really start with with Woolf the, the letters and diaries which are you know with, with with some writers, um, Stephen Spender's September Journal, he sort of gives gives up on that quite quickly. But Virginia Woolf was was very uh, committed to uh, you know getting her her thoughts and feelings down. And 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 within those diaries and letters, are so many names and different leads that you you can you can follow. It's all it's all there, really. I think that's one of the really interesting things about the story you're telling is that one thing leads to another. I mean, Woolf is there. And by way of Wolf, we get Leonard Wolf, and we get the Hogarth Press, and John Lehman, and uh, and Stephen Spender, and and there's a kind of cause and effect to to the story, which I, I enjoyed very much. Now we don't often think of Wolf as a war writer, but as you point out, in many ways her, her life is defined by the experience of two world wars. I mean, people she lost in the first, and her experience of the second. Um, I wonder if we can say anything about the the precise. Um, pieces of literature, the fiction and the non-fiction, the, the biography of Roger Fry that she was writing uh, around this period? The first thing that really struck me about Wolfe's um, wartime fictional output was that I would never in a million years have thought that the author of Mrs. Dalloway and The Waves would go on to write really a Second World War novel. Um, it began as Points Hall and was eventually retitled Between the Acts. Um, Leonard published it after her death, um, and I think I think part of the reason that we don't think of it as having the same um, weight or importance within her oeuvre is that there were rumours at the time that she might have planned to to rewrite certain parts, and certainly the ending was under debate. The novel's based in um, it's it's set just before the outbreak of the Second World. World War and it takes place on on a summer's day when a, a villager holding a um, performance in in three parts. Um, one of the parts is, is is Shakespeare, I think, and another based around the uh, British Empire, maybe. And there's a final dramatic sequence where in the in the in the third section of the uh, of this kind of pageant, mirrors are are turned on the audience then to realise their own role in in certain events or or whatever that might be. And there's a kind of ticking which sort of plays 
is always heard by the audience throughout the, uh, the final sequences, which seems to come from a local combine harvester in a, in a field nearby. Perhaps it is there really um, to 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 remind the reader of of what is what is coming and what what can't be ignored. Really, in her nonfiction, I came to understand her, her, her wartime nonfiction it involved looking looking back on her life, um, whether that you know was a was a inevitable circumstance of 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 her kind of getting towards towards sixty. And then finally in her critical writing, um, there are two pieces which I um, focus on in, in the book. The first is her lecture given to the uh, Workers' Educational Association in Brighton, uh, which she calls the Leaning Tower, um, in which she positions herself as a defender of past values. She does that too in, in a... In a a letter to a to to John Lehman. In both of these, she positions herself as a defender of of the writing of of her life. Really, they feel both feel almost like a response to uh, Connolly's ideas in Enemies of Promise or accusations in en- Enemies of Promise that, that there is a an, an ivory tower of writers of Mandarin writers like Virginia Woolf, who who. Um, whose time whose time is up really virginia takes the uh stance with john layman the division between them is is really over politics and where where politics fits in in writing there was certainly a, a feeling and if you read the poetry of stephen spender you'll know that it's uh, ever present really the feeling that politics sort of had to constantly be a, be addressed it was too urgent the 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 events uh, the developments in in europe were were too significant too you know life-threatening to to not to appear in in poetry and in novels this brings us to one of your other characters uh, prominent character stephen spender um at one time member of the communist party also very involved in um, poems for spain and went to the spanish civil war now when the Second World War broke out, he joined the Fire Brigade, um, and many people say he wrote some of his best poems during the London Blitz. And Spender seems to have known almost everyone. I, I wonder how he came to occupy the very prominent position he did in the 30s and in the 40s, as you've described. I think this is a fascinating question, and it's something I was thinking about constantly for Spender and and also for W. H. Jordan and Christopher Richwood, how how they and why they became became the big the big names of their of their time. There's a short answer in regard to uh, uh, um, Stephen Spender in that he was he was charming and and he was he he sought people out that you know these letters he he, he writes at the um, just before he goes down from Oxford and begins to uh, travel um, Europe. He, he he writes to Virginia Woolf, he writes to Leonard, he writes to uh, Harold Nicholson, and he he wants to to get out there and and know these people. He wants to put himself in front of them, and he was he was charming, and he had a kind of infectious energy, um, which made him, you know, a, an eligible leader in a sense for for a kind of younger population. But there are also these kind of myth making elements 
play. He knows Auden at Oxford. Auden's been to to um, school with um, Spender's older brother Matthew, and through Auden meets Isherwood, and and it's Spender actually who 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 kind of privately prints uh, Auden's first collection of poems in 1928 using a kind of home printing press, and and I think Auden later. And, and Spender, I think, too, later started to feel, you know, came to feel quite embarrassed about this production. But it's a statement of, in, of intent. And they, they, they both become, become Faber poets under T.S. Eliot. With Spender, and I think this is of particular significance, he, he becomes a, he becomes a Faber, Faber poet in 1933. So the big year of Hitler becoming Chancellor of Germany and the Reichstag fire among other things. So his poems, which are political, which feel kind of immediate and urgent and and passionate, they land at the perfect time, really. And there's a feeling that he, as you know, as a representative of the younger generation, is very attuned to what's going on. So there are there's a there's an image that that builds around him him from that time in 1936. The big thing is he 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 joins he joins the uh, Communist Party of Great Britain and becomes a, a kind of major voice. You know, if if if, if you want to um, speak to a kind of expert from from one side of a debate about about an event, he he's the kind of person you'd pick back in back then for the for the the Spanish Civil War. And he travels a bit and he writes and he's on radio a lot. But for Harry Pollitt, who's the leader of the uh, Communist Party. He's seen as this figure with enormous potential. And there's his phrase, Pollock would like Spender, quote, to go and get killed, we need a Byron in the movement. Um, this phrase is, actually comes from, I think, Virginia Woolf's diaries. But but that's the kind of figure he is. He he, he kind of picks up a kind of mythology around him, him quite easily. One of the things that your book is very true to is the variety of different responses to the war that come through. And evil in war, for example, spent much of his later life trying to make sense of the Second World War and to give it a fictional shape through the Sword of Honor trilogy. Um, maybe you could tell us a bit more about the role Evelyn War occupies within your story. So Evelyn War provides a really fascinating counterpoint to to various of the uh, authors that I uh, write about. He is training with the Royal Marines at first. He's up in Scotland and Kent, and then I think for a while he's down in um, Matlock, and, and and none of these uh, situations are, are, are conducive to to writing. Um, but he has managed to um, get a novel out. It's uh, Put Out More Flags, which he writes, I think, on a kind of long boat journey at the very beginning. But his experience of the war was... I. Th- think you could say in polar opposite really to 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 people like spenders his division in the marines does it in 1941 sail to libya and, and they are involved in a night raid after that he's he's with the royal house guards at windsor and it's it feels like a very sort of decorative role with no real purpose that they, they, you know they, there seems to be unlimited supply of port for them to drink and they're playing cards and smoking cigars and eating well and he feels very detached from the conflict in that way 
because of the people he knows and because he's he's he has you know been able to establish himself as a, a major comic novelist before the outbreak of the war once he becomes fed up of the war and part of his feeling fed up was was feeling that he he, he wasn't being able to uh, contribute in the way he'd like to you know it's, it's something I, I come back to a few times uh, throughout the book that most of these writers did did really want to to get involved um you know, I was surprised at the uh, at the willingness of certain people like Dylan Thomas and and Stephen Spender and Stephen Spender having to kind of pretend that he he was fitter than he he really was, for instance, and and, and people wanting to help in the, in that way was frustrated. And 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 once he gets bored of this, and he and it happens around you know 1943, he just suddenly thinks I'm 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 a kind of contributing nothing here, and and I'm. I'm hating it. Um, he 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 writes and applies for um, you know a long leave to to work on Bright Every Visited, and that that leave is granted. And he he travels back to London and he sets himself up in in his club, um, has, has a big sort of lounge room at his club, and he just and he just sits and 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 he does it. Evelyn Wall wrote about two thousand words a day, so he probably wrote it quicker than um, people might think, but but. It's a sort of protected position, you know. He's one of few writers who, government or war office or whoever it may be, is is willing to say, okay, sure, maybe we maybe we we could, you know, it would be a beneficial or it would look good on us if 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 he was still writing. Is is a position similar to um to to some of the war artists, though though not. You know, there's, there's nothing official around it. There's, they're, they're not, you know, protected by any kind of contracts or anything. There's something quite comical about Spender. You're, the account you give of him having to sort of play darts and and uh, you know listen to music he doesn't like on the radio, and he complains about the constant clicking of, of billiard balls, all these kind of rather minor irritations, which it actually chimes with Burgess's experience of the war in Gibraltar and so forth you know, mixing with people who wouldn't normally come into his orbit and that, that sense that everyone's kind of given up something, um, you know, maybe a, a big chunk of their youth in some cases to take part in this this kind of bigger thing that essentially most of the time just wastes your time. It's a, it's a fascinating uh, uh, cross-section. Um, you know, poets and, and, and bricklayers and everyone's wearing the same... Um, Spender talks about, I think, they're kind of navy-coloured rompers, which are, which which kind of remove all, you know, individuality from from the people wearing them. Uh, but, but yeah, Burgess, absolutely the same frustrations. Is you know, is this the the best use you can make of me? You know, both of them speaking, you know, at least one other language well. Um, you know. And then also, that, what can they contribute as a writer in terms of messaging or um, or propaganda or you know, great minds as well that could be in, could be used in you know to some degree in 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 strategy or something like that. George George Orwell had a theory really that it was a it was a it was a punishment for um, the role of writers in the kind of promotion of communism in the in the thirties. Whether that was more a kind of conspiracy or whatever but certainly with it, it is frustrating to read of, of of 
people like Spender doing what they had to do. So they found they found they both both became uh, took on kind of educational roles within within their um, wartime groups. Spender, you know, helped uh, um, organize a, a sort of program among firefighters where people would come and deliver lectures and things like that. And, and of course, Burgess was doing a similar thing. I wanted to ask how important it was to you as you were assembling this this story to rehabilitate writers who were perhaps were less well known. Um, thinking in particular of figures such as John Lehman and uh, Arthur Kersler, who you know seems to be on almost nobody's map these days. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, Lehman's situation is unusual because of his sister. Uh, so his older sister. Rosamund Lehman is a fantastic novelist, um, one of my favourite writers from the from this part of the twentieth century. You know, she, she's as as good as you know Elizabeth Bowen and and as as clever as Virginia Woolf. And 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 I knew both of those people. I feel I feel more protective of of Rosamund oddly. Um, but to make a case for John Lehman, I I don't necessarily think it will happen beyond this but to make a case for John Lehman he he really cared about everything and he he felt everything very deeply so he writes he writes his autobiography in three volumes and the second which he titles I am my brother is almost entirely dedicated to the the second world war period so it's a is a is a brilliant um resource and 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 document. He also writes memoirs of his friendships with Virginia Woolf and Christopher Isherwood, um, you know, which I, you know, I couldn't have, have, have written the book without. Um, so he was building a, a historical record around his own life, and um, but really, he was happy to, um, to to shine the spotlight on on the work the work of others. Someone like Connolly, for instance, you know, his his. His his ambition is to become a, a, a classic novelist. Layman Layman's happy to call himself an anthologist. You know, he, he he's he's foregrounding uh, uh, the lives and work of of others, which I I think is you know in, in, endeared me to him greatly. Yeah, and and that brings us back to Kersler, and you know I'm I'm not sure we'll get we'll get too many people you know feeling uh, sympathetic towards him, but it's it's. We absolutely have to see him. We have to place him in a bracket with people like Orwell, who were totally free thinking and perceptive, and whose understanding of the war was kind of undiluted by partisanship. The, the novel uh, "Darkness at Noon," I, I think, is 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 spectacular, and I, I think it's imperative that people continue to read that and also i think a, a novel that you know is very influential on 1984 for example yes ab- absolutely it's that feeling of you know the walls closing in in this in this cold future now we have a particular interest in the writing of the 1940s because anthony burgess was reading it when he was stationed on gibraltar from 1943 to 1946 before he got out of the army and Burgess mentions a number of books and magazines which kept him going and kind of sustained his hunger for culture during that time. He writes about Horizon magazine. He mentions the Four Quartets, uh, Connolly, The Unquiet Grave, Brighthead Revisited. 
how far do you think the writers who feature in your book thought of themselves as carrying that torch for culture during the war? Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated with um, Burgess's commentary on the war. Um, in particular, this kind of insight into how the historical class divisions of Britain had kind of impeded the, uh, the sense of a unified fighting spirit. And, and we talked about this, uh, you know, the, the, the comparison with Spender. Burgess gives a, a similar impression that perhaps many British soldiers emphasise more with their, their German fighting counterparts than they did, um, you know, majors, brigadiers, generals. Uh, Burgess talks about talks about Churchill, and um, and and makes the case that the reason was what well, reason Churchill was voted out uh, in a, you know a landslide uh, election was because people just didn't really like him, and they and and they 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 were af- afraid of his belligerence. Um, a religions that might keep them away with the army for longer than they wanted to be. They wanted to be home. This is a fantastic phrase of Burgess's, um, I think it comes from some of his uh, kind of juvenile poetry. He says, the, the king is only a, a cinema slide. And he's he's referring to um, Emblem for the King, which would, which would come up on screen when the uh, national anthem was played at the, uh, at the end of uh, cinema screenings. And... Um, Certainly, from from working class uh, Manchester, that was his um, his interaction with with the privileged royals and and politicians and 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 those at the heart of of making decisions for the country and defining the country country's national identity. So Burgess talks about I think it's called the British Way and Purpose, which is a rather kind of um, a feeble um, scheme attempt. Attempt by the War Office to um, to make to, to make promises for the future without promising too much to kind of you know fan the flames of of morale towards the end towards the end of the war when it seems to be uh, you know starting to fade by hinting really that that you know the the invisible structures of society will will kind of be overhauled once once this war is done and if and if people can can just you know if we can just get over the line you know all the attention will then be turned to that few people i think really bought into this um they were ready to to go to the polling stations and vote um but otherwise there was a a strong sense you know by the end that let's just you know, let's get this bloody thing done, really, and and move on with our lives. But the the sense, I think, of of, of you know the, the the waning morale and the feeling that people just wants to be home, it, you know, brings 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 me back to uh, Connolly's idea of of culture, uh, which in his head, you know. The, soaking in a long bath and reading a book of poetry or being on a on a on a Mediterranean beach or whatever it is it was absolutely the opposite of what people were actually doing you know the, the great fear for Burgess and the people around him of you know having to 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 wait possibly quite a long time to for their 
demobilization and and feeling that they could just be stuck in this kind of purgatory the very least you could say about um what these writers were doing is they they were wanting to entertain they of course were writing for themselves and 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 four quartets and brides had revisited you know have the feel of of mature and impressive and 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 sort of kind of bigger works but but they were returning to what they were doing before which was which was writing to 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 tackle you know the questions of of life and fear and mortality and 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 to to entertain and and just to just to keep intact um the sort of things that people have grown used to in in their in uh, their pre-war lives one of the other things that struck me reading your book was how how timely how contemporary it is in many ways i mean above all i think what you've done is to provide a, a very readable uh, very well written very well researched picture of an area of literary history that is not well known people sometimes talk about the the lost decade of the 40s and like all of the best literary histories it sends you back to the work i've found as i've been reading i've been looking sideways into uh, many of the, the the primary works that you you write about with new eyes so writing in the dark bloomsbury the blitz and horizon magazine just out in paperback i would recommend to everybody as one of those books that opens all kinds of doors and windows into the period so will thank you very much for uh, agreeing to come on the anthony burgess podcast thank you You've been listening to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. Writing in the Dark, Bloomsbury, The Blitz and Horizon magazine by Will Loxley is out now in paperback from all good bookshops. For more about Anthony Burgess and to find out how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts?